into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs? You kidding me? I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Hello? You play to win the game. They're down to the 20. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the all-time shockers. Hi, everyone. I'm Mitch Goldich, and welcome to episode 14 of my very creatively named Mitch Goldich podcast. It's March, so a great time of year for basketball fans. NBA's in the stretch run, March Madness. And today I'm talking to somebody who's very plugged in on both of those fronts. It's Derek Bodner, who is an NBA writer. He's covered the Sixers for the last five years or so, the last couple at Philadelphia Magazine. Uh, He recently moved uh, to his own independent model on his own site, which I'm sure we're going to talk all about. He also covers the draft for draftexpress.com. So uh, thanks for tuning in. I'm sure we'll talk about the Sixers and Sam Hinkie and the lottery and all that fun stuff. Uh, If it's your first time checking out the podcast, you can subscribe in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. If you're feeling generous, you can also leave me a rating and a review at iTunes. And if you are a Philly fan uh, and found this through Derek, I have some old episodes that you might like. You can go back and check them out. Uh, Tom McCarthy, Jason Stark, uh, Michael Levin from Liberty Ballers and Rights Ricky Sanchez podcast. Uh, So if you're a uh, Sixers or a Philly sports fan, you can go back and check all of those out. But now let's bring in Derek Bodner. Hey, Derek, how's it going? It's going great. Great. We picked a good uh, Tuesday. There's no March Madness. No Sixers. I'm sure you'd rather be watching Pistons Nets right now, but thanks for carving <laughs> out some time to, to chat with me on the podcast. It is it is my pleasure. <laughs> um, so I almost always start with the same question, and I've read uh, a little bit about your bio and the highlights, but I always like to just bring people in. You know, it's kind of boring to have me read the whole thing. So as a way of introduction, uh, would you mind just sharing your career path? And I know you're independent now, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that uh, a lot. But first, could you just give us your path? Uh, how you got your start in uh, basketball writing and then uh, basically leading up to your job at Philly Magazine. Sure. Well, my um, my background is in technology. I'm a, I'm a computer engineer, and it's a combination of network engineering and systems engineering, and basically what I say is I keep websites online. Uh, and then I actually got my break. At one point, I had to, and this is this is a little bit long of a story, but I guess bear with me. Uh, I had to learn a new database software, and my job, I started a new job, had to go from basically MySQL to Postgres, and I thought to myself, all right, I'm going to come up with a, with a project to learn this new database system. What do I, uh, you know, what, what would I have interest in throwing in a database? And the first thing I came to was basketball statistics, started writing some stuff, this was probably back in like 07, uh, 06, 07, uh, and started basically scraping play-by-play data, throwing it into a database and basically determining effectiveness of five-man units. And I started doing this only for the the Sixers. Um, But basically, I started then posting links to this um, uh, on message boards because that's how basketball fans communicated back then. Uh, Very, very weird by today's standards. But um, it started getting traffic, and I thought, you know what, I already spent enough time arguing about basketball on the Internet, on message boards and whatnot. I might as well, I already have people going to my blog, so I might as well start writing about it. And that's kind of how I started blogging about the Sixers. And around that time, I also got in contact with the Draft Express guys. And they had struggled to stay online during uh, during the draft because they have a huge spike in traffic, obviously. 
so I said, you know, this is kind of my expertise. This is this is what I do during my day job. I would be happy to volunteer and help you guys get through the, the, the draft period and, and make any recommendations I can on how you have it set up. So I started volunteering there on a purely technical uh, role. But eventually, you know, I started I started wanting to write for them. I'd always had a strong interest in the draft. Um, I started sending them kind of scouting reports and my thoughts and got feedback and got better as a scout. And eventually it got to the point where he thought, okay, this is, you know, you've, you've put in the work. You clearly watch enough basketball. Would you like to write a thing or two? And it kind of grew out of there. So, and then I, I kind of got found by a local Sixers blog, got signed up there. That blog blew up uh, as part of the SB Nation network. And everything just kind of rolled from there. I got a, a then a job at a local radio station, 97.3 ESPN, uh, one of the local ESPN affiliates covering the team. And it was a combination of writing for them and then also cutting up audio. And then from there, I got a, a job with USA Today covering the NBA draft. And then from there, I kind of went from locally covering the Sixers to Philadelphia Magazine, which is where I was right up until uh, right up until the end of January when they they cut basically their entire sports department. Yeah. Uh, and so I think a lot of people, I mean, a lot of Sixers fans definitely know you because you've been on that beat for the last few years. And like you said, you know, doing draft stuff, it's not like only Sixers fans know you, but I think uh, it got a lot of attention um, when Philly Magazine, I mean, I think that's going to get a lot of attention anyway when uh, Philly Magazine cuts their whole sports staff and, and all Sixers coverage. Yeah. But uh, watching from afar, the outpouring of people who reached out to you after you uh, after you were let go there and then decided to start your own venture, uh, and in your words, basically pushing independent journalism and uh, posting everything to your site, and now you have a subscription model. Um, so what was that decision like to, uh, to make that leap where instead of maybe looking for a, a full-time writing gig or another place where you could write to decide to do it on your own website and ask people to pay subscriptions. Uh, how did you make that decision? Yeah, well, it's something that I had thought about for a while. And and basically, it's just how much, you know, everything being an ad model, how that has to change how you write. And how, if I want to target 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 diehard fans, and if I, let's say I want to go home, really take a, an in-depth video or st statistical look at a game, or, or really spend like five hours on something like that. There's no, there's no um, scale. There, I, I'll never get the scale, the traffic, the number of people to make that worthwhile, a worthwhile time of investment. And even at Philadelphia Magazine, where I had complete autonomy in what I wanted to do, I still ultimately knew if I didn't get enough traffic to generate enough revenue, then I wasn't going to be around because it is still a, it is still a business. It is still an ad-driven business. So even where I had the most flexibility as possible. I knew that ultimately I had to drive traffic. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing, it does change the way you write. And I think there's a real market for, especially locally. You know, I think, I think nationally there's a lot of, of great people who do a lot of great work because you have other revenue streams that kind of subsidize what you're doing. And even if maybe your page views aren't enough to maybe break even, they're helping build the brand. And that's something that's tough to do locally. And I think the market's really, really lost because of that. You know, so I, I, I looked at, at places like The Athletic. And in fact, I've had I've had had talks with some of the people there uh, and they are branching out and they're not intending to come to Philly anytime soon. But I thought it was interesting, their model and what they were able to prove. 
And, you know, I just kind of wondered, I've always, I've always looked to, to see, you know, is it possible that we're going to be able to eventually bounce back and get untied from this ad driven model and get people back to the point where they'd be willing to pay for something they really valued and something they felt was adding value that, and that was missing from the marketplace. So I kind of looked at the athletic and I thought, and I didn't think it would work. But once I announced that I was leaving Philadelphia magazine, not necessarily voluntarily, you know, enough people reached out to me and said, look, you should, you should try this. You should try Patreon. You should try this. Uh, I really think that there are, are, are some people out there that would be willing to pay for it. So I was pretty much talked into it. Like it's something that I had thought about beforehand. It's something that I thought, you know, wondered whether it was feasible, whether it was something that the industry would, could, could go back to. And then I was talked into basically giving it a shot. And the response has been pretty overwhelming. I never in a million years thought that, you know, I basically got about 1,600 subscribers in the first month. I never, never thought that was going to, going to happen. Uh, I think it's a, a really interesting dynamic on, on maybe why that is. And I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to have had a lot of people who have, you know, push that out because I think one of the downsides is I'm not really, I'm not a salesman and certainly not a salesman about myself, but I have had a lot of colleagues in the industry that have, have really helped get the word out and, uh, and it's really taken off. And I think it's a, you know, a good, uh, a, a good, um, media market to do it in because I do think there's a lot of excitement about the Sixers youth and about what the, uh, what the future might hold. So really it's something that I just thought, you know, I, I would love to find a way to decouple, revenue from page views and clicks and i had seen the athletic try it and then i had enough people tell me to give it a shot that i basically just threw caution to the wind and said screw it i'm gonna try it so, so 1600 uh subscribers and that was going to be my next question did you have a number in mind where you said okay if i can't get this number it's not even worth it or maybe you're thinking it's going to take a few months to grow but uh it sounds like you've exceeded what you expected uh, so was there that number or that that point where you where you thought maybe after a little bit you'll give it up uh, if you couldn't get to a certain number? Yeah, well, I I, I set I set it up, uh, set the Patreon up, and I created a test account for myself to kind of test test some features on it. So when I sent out the tweet, I was sitting there at one, and I thought, you know, if I could if I could at least get to ten and not look like a complete fool, that would be great. And I was half joking about that, but when you submit something like that, you do sit there hitting refresh and worry that nobody's going to actually sign up. But I think realistically, I thought if I could get five hundred in a month, that would that would be fantastic, and that would be something I could then grow from there and see whether or not I could build up steam. Uh, for it to be sixteen hundred, I was very and and really for it to be sixteen hundred during a time in the season when interest in the Sixers, quite frankly, just died. Um, because you had, you know, the Joel Embiid injury and out for the season, the announcement that Ben Simmons was going to be out for the season, a team that was, you know, maybe on the outside looking in, but at least had a chance you thought to maybe make a playoff run that is now gone. And even in spite of that, it has, has, like I said, it's exceeded my wildest, wildest expectations. Yeah. And I just realized, I guess I should probably say uh, full disclosure that I'm, I'm one of the 1600 um, and it's been fun. It's only $3 a month, which is, you know, less than half of Netflix. Um, but so uh, it's been fun for me because you, you post stuff on your website and then also you have uh, like a weekly column that's basically for subscribers only, but then also a, a daily newsletter, which for me is just really convenient because I feel like every morning you have links to every Sixers article uh, around the internet and, and updated lottery odds every day, which let's face it, that's all Sixers fans really care about <laughs> this time of year. Um, so, I mean, how much thought went into deciding, 
here's what I'm going to do every day and, and sort of that model of, okay, there'll be a daily newsletter and a weekly column and this and that. And, and, you know, what was that like for you deciding? Cause it seems like you basically looked and said, okay, what do Sixers fans need? And let me put together the whole package. But what was that like sort of deciding what you wanted to do uh, and, and, you know, what you either suddenly had the time for because you weren't writing for Philly magazine anymore or things that maybe you couldn't do, you know, sort of that, that decision process of, uh, of figuring out what you would put together for your subscribers. Yeah, sure. Well, so one of the things was I didn't want to go to a, a 100% subscription model. And I think part of that was because, you know, it's one thing for the New York Times or the Washington Post for them to be able to tune it to the point where they say, okay, you get 10 articles a month or whatever it is. And to be able to then integrate that into all their apps and all the websites and be able to do that effectively, it's very difficult, especially for a, a one-man shop like myself. So I didn't want to have an all or nothing paywall because I didn't want to prevent myself, you know, if something would happen from going viral. So I wanted to find a way where I could basically make it feel like the subscribers were getting value and then the rest of the content would be public. So that's kind of where I came up with the, the newsletter, uh, the morning newsletter idea, uh, because I thought, like you said, that I could maybe add a little bit of value and look at $3 a month. You don't necessarily have to add, you don't have to change the world. But I thought maybe I could add a little bit of value, make people's lives a little bit easier. Still write. I do a what I call a mailbag column or a mailbag question and answer in the morning where I take one question, go, you know, five or six or seven hundred words on that topic. So I thought the combination of the draft picks and the the, the um, college players, uh, I, I basically round up who's playing. And then the links, I thought maybe I could add some value to do that while not making my entire site a paywall, uh, which was what I was looking to do. So that's kind of where that was born out of. Mm -hmm. So then I'm also curious just about your access, because um, I'm sure your press credential to cover games was through Philly Magazine, where you aren't anymore. But sure. uh, I also, I assume Sixers PR people must know you from coming around. And so do they credential you for your new site, or have you lost that ability? Are there things that you've lost because you've moved... Uh, to not to sort of being your own media outlet now. Uh, in what ways has that kind of changed the the job that you're able to do? Sure. Well, I mean, I have I have been with, you know, covering the team in some capacity for about five years now. Uh, and the first first two seasons of that were kind of, you know, I would get a a game pass, a pass to cover a game uh, permission to go to a press conference. But it wasn't a full season. The last three seasons have been full season credentials. So I've gotten to know the PR staff pretty well. I also have a relationship with one of the local radio stations uh, where I do some work for them in, in 94 WIP. So the combination of that, um, you know, that relationship with the PR staff, they know that I'm you know, going to take it seriously, that what I'm going to write is going to be professional in nature. And also the fact that I'm now affiliated with a, you know, the biggest sports radio station in the city that has allowed me to keep my credentials, which is which is, you know, a huge benefit. And obviously makes my job a lot easier to do and makes that value add a lot more meaningful. Uh, it was something that I wasn't sure right off the bat whether or not I would be able to. And in fact, when I made the post on Patreon, you know, saying this is what I'm looking to do, I said I couldn't guarantee credentials at that time. But I had a meeting with the with the PR staff and I am I am good to go moving forward in that regard. Mm -hmm. So how about uh, any other changes? Because I was thinking even about travel and I'm not sure how much travel you've done in the past, like either summer league out in Vegas or some road games. I know you don't cover like all 82 and go on the road. And also cause you have a job, which to me is amazing that you're able to uh, do all the Sixers coverage while also having it, uh, 
your uh, computer job that you already talked about. Um, so anything like travel or anything else that's tougher or that, that you kind of lose because now you're out on your own? Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting. One of the things I didn't travel, Philly Mag didn't really have much of a travel budget for me. So I'm not losing much in terms of covering the team. I would go up to up to New York, up to Brooklyn, uh, up to Boston uh, and down to Washington. But that was pretty much the extent of my travel. I'm not sure that's really going to change. Uh, I haven't I haven't tried to travel yet since this arrangement happened. So we'll see. You know, I think one of the things I had covered the NBA draft at USA Today in the past, and I had gone to the lottery. I had gone to um, you know various events, including the combine, inc- including Portsmouth, a couple other things to cover. And I have um, not doing that this year. Instead, um, I just started writing for the Ringer as well. So I'm dropping that, and that will change. But that's not really um, related to the Sixers coverage at all. So I don't think it's going to change too much because I didn't. I just didn't travel all that much covering the Sixers. My travel budget went from zero to zero. So there's really a really not much change in that regard. The only change will come when I look to get credentials from those, you know, three or four teams that I would otherwise be able to commute to on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that piece at the Ringer on uh, Ricky Rubio, and I was surprised to see that. So is is that a uh, regular thing now? Like, basically, will you just be able to write non-Sixers pieces for them and and uh, save Sixers stuff for your site? Or how are you looking for other places to freelance? Or is that going to be a regular thing seeing your uh, your byline over at the Ringer? I think that is going to be a regular thing. That was one of the reasons why I was a little more willing to, I mean, you know, there's two reasons why I'm um, willing to take the risk of going out on my own. First of all, nobody's hiring a full-time Sixers beat writer in the middle of the season. That just doesn't happen. Second of all, I have that day job, like you mentioned, um, to fall back on if things fail. And I have my degree to fall back on if I, even if I would quit my job, which is, uh, you know, a possibility going forward, but I still have that degree to fall back on. Uh, but also I had the ringer opportunity that I knew I had, and that gave me a platform to still kind of keep my name out there and still be relevant even if I go behind a paywall, even if I now don't have a media company backing me and tweeting out all my stuff and giving me all kinds of access. And also the fact that I have relationships with everybody in the Philadelphia media. You know, I've been on on you know the local Comcast Sportsnet affiliate a handful of times in a month and a half since uh, since doing this. So I have that relationship too. But those are all ways that I can kind of keep my name in the public sphere without necessarily having a traditional media outlet behind me. Mm-hmm. All right. So so beyond just, uh, you know, where you're posting things, I also I, I love talking to people about sort of how they do their day to day and, uh, you know, even what they're watching and reading and writing. And so to me, uh, you know, it's impressive that you're able to do so much. And, and I know you're watching the Sixers and tweeting through all their games and watching other teams and the, the people who are able to follow both college and pro at the same time and keep up with the draft uh, is, is always impressive, too. So, you know, how do you balance that? What uh, like on a on a normal night? What are you watching? How much basketball are you watching? How much uh, you know, I know it's a priority to watch the Sixers, but if you've got a choice between a random NBA game or a college game or, you know, or highlights or film later or whatever, you know, how do you uh, how do you balance all of that? And, and what do you end up uh, how, how much basketball do you end up watching and, and how do you divvy it up? Oh, geez, uh, too <laughs> much. Um, one of the great things, especially covering the draft uh, with Draft Express, we have access to a, a scouting service which has video of video of the games. And it takes it removes pretty much all stoppages, commercials, stoppages of play. So I can watch a 40 minute college game 
it's not quite 40 minutes because there's still free throws, there's still inbounds, things that take a little more time than the seconds move off the clock. But I can watch a 40-minute college game in about 50 minutes. So that is a, a huge lifesaver. I watch way less live basketball than I used to. Even when the Sixers are on the road nowadays, I don't watch many of those games live. Unless I'm actually there, I'm probably watching the game on delay so I can be a little bit more efficient with my time because like you said, there's uh, I, I have you know a lot of balls that I'm juggling up in the air. Um, so I do that. I do a lot off hours. Like I do most of my work in terms of writing from about 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. because I find that I'm way less distracted at that time of the day in part because I'm half awake, but in part because there's just nothing else going on. There's no basketball games for me to watch and distract myself. There's no real activity on Twitter for me to distract myself. I don't have to worry about any travel, traveling in the middle of the day to go to practice or whatnot. So I do that. All these little kind of things that make me a little bit more efficient at what I do. I probably watch on average about two basketball games a day. And whether that's, you know, a day where there's a Sixers game and then I'll watch like one college game or maybe that might be two college games if there's no Sixers game to watch. But it kind of works out like that. And like I said, the fact that I have some of these tools available to me has really made that possible. All right. I got to call a timeout because I did a, a bit of a double take and I'm sure other people listening did too. As you said, 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. So yeah. uh, many people are sleeping at 4 a.m. Is that uh, are you still awake then? writing or is that <laughs> alarm at 4 a.m. and you wake up to do your writing then i'm pretty lucky once once i get up and walk around for a minute i wake up pretty quickly mm-hmm. um but like 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 you said i have a i still have a day job so that's been one of the real struggles with with this venture is because i just don't feel like i'm doing a good enough job because i'll do my writing from 4 a.m to 8 a.m i'll do my day job after that and luckily my day jobs i, I work remotely so i have a lot of flexibility in that regard and I save a lot of time from him travel and, and and all that stuff. But also, like by the time I'm then at a point where I can write again at five six p.m., I'm you know thirteen fourteen hours into a workday, and my concentration just just not there. So yes, I do a lot of my work from four a.m. to eight a.m. Uh, I certainly go to sleep a lot earlier than I used to, which gets to be an issue on on those West Coast games. But like I said, I watch I watch live basketball so infrequently nowadays that that hasn't been a huge problem. But yeah, it's a uh, it's uh, I have had to learn to be a morning person, and that that was not in my nature a couple years ago. Yeah, I was going to say, so you are at least going to bed early. You're not going to bed at a normal time and then waking up at four o'clock in the morning to start writing. You're you're still you're getting some sleep, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I, I'd say I probably get about six hours. <laughs> OK, all right. That's not that bad. Just just looking out for you. <laughs> just, yeah. just wanted to make sure. <laughs> Thank um, you. So uh, along those lines of like balancing everything, I have kind of a, and this is like a very in the weeds, uh, nerdy writing kind of question. Um, so I'm going to read back, uh, something that you wrote, which is always fun. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I was reading the game recap after the Sixers Mavs game on your site and you had, uh, the following couple sentences. You said part of that was due to the nature of the Mavs game plan as they traditionally eschew pursuing offensive rebounds to get back in transition. Dallas's 18.1% offensive rebounding rate ranks last in the league and they've ranked 23rd or worst in the league in offensive rebounding in each of the past eight seasons. So I expect you to know those kinds of things about the Sixers, but uh, to pull that out about the Mavericks, I'm curious where that came from. I was, I was wondering if uh, something that's, that's just something you've known about the Mavericks uh, getting back in transition for years, or if you were doing research before the game and saw that number, or if you noticed it during the game and then went back and found the numbers I'm just, uh, you know, thinking about where you spend your time and the things that you know. 
I was curious how uh, a paragraph like that, and I should say I'm a stats guy myself, and I, I love reading pieces that have numbers like that, but something like that, how does that, uh, such a fine detail about the Mavericks, end up in your Sixers-Mavericks uh, kind of game story? Yeah, well, most of things like that, I typically, I'll, I'll look up beforehand. Like, I'll, I'll kind of do like a scouting report of the team they're playing beforehand, and sometimes that will make its way into into a game preview. I've kind of stopped, especially now that I'm out on my own. I have I have leeway to write and not write what I want. And for the most part, game previews, especially for a a team like the Sixers, where I mean, quite frankly, not a whole lot of people are all that vested in the game to game day to day stuff in the, for the team right now. So I've kind of stopped publishing a lot of my game previews because they just don't do any traffic. They don't generate a lot of interest. But I still, I still do almost like, a, like I said, a scouting report. So I'll go, I'll look at, uh, I'll look at a lot of the stats. Like a lot of those comes from either, you know, NBA.com/stats or Basketball Reference. But I'll, I'll kind of get a strengths, weaknesses, how they're doing recently, how they're doing in the last ten, something like that, where I saw that they were so bad at, at offensive rebounding. I'll then go back and see if that's a trend over a couple of years. Maybe it's personnel related, maybe it's scheme related. But I will, I'll do that so that while I'm watching, I can kind of take notes. And I'll say, look, I haven't I haven't seen them get an offensive rebound in, you know, eight minutes of play or they have we're in the third quarter. They have three offensive rebounds on a day. I'll know to kind of make note of that. And then I don't have to waste as much time afterwards to uh, to to go look that up. So it's kind of it's, it's a lot of preparation. I just find it's easier to cover a game if I go in kind of knowing their tendencies and their strengths and weaknesses. And it's a lot more than convincing if, if you say not only did they do that today, but they've that's a trend for them. So it's a lot of that's preparation. At least that one specifically was. All right, cool. Um, also, I wanted to ask you about breaking news uh, and especially because, sure. um, you know, so you've covered the team for five years, but in the grand scheme of things uh, that, you know, that there are people on your beat who've been at it for much longer in the same place, covering the same team. And uh, you know, I, I think uh, we've seen that in a few cases where you've broken news. And I think some injury reports recently and things about players health, um, and you know, I always kind of smile a little bit when a local guy breaks it. And there have been times when, when you've broken it over some of the, you know, bigger name quote unquote people at, at, uh, you know, bigger media outlets. Um, so, you know, for somebody like you who came into this without, uh, like that classic, uh, journalism background, you know, how, uh, how hard was that to get in that position where, uh, you know, you have sources and you're actually able to break news and then how much of your, day is uh your your time covering the team is spent uh you know going after news and trying to be a newsbreaker as opposed to just an analyst analyzing what you're seeing yeah well i would say first of all it's, it's extremely difficult that's a, an incredibly difficult field to break into the barrier to entry there is is really tough because it's all about relationships and well i mean it's about two things about platform and relationships there are some times where a big platform will get the news because it's just the most efficient means of distributing that news. But more often than not, it's about relationships. It's about building up that trust level. And so breaking into that is very difficult. I think what I would say, I kind of came up as a journalist through the Sam Hinkie regime, who was no, notoriously quiet on leaks. Like they, they weren't going to confirm stuff. They weren't going to tell you stuff. They weren't going to leak stuff. So I think I, I learned real real early on with those guys, I could go up to them and ask them to confirm information or I could ask them for, you know, for news that I could then report and I could get nothing or I could go up and just try to build context, build background, 
not even ask them specific questions about the team, but try to get inside their mind. Just talk to them and build up a relationship. Inform my ability to interpret what they're doing and kind of build credibility that way. And I think that worked out well for me, but I think it also then allowed me to build relationships because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going there for the explicit purpose of, you know, tell me who you're going to release to make this happen or tell me who you've talked to in trades or tell me this, tell me that. I was just going up and talking basketball. And I think even when they left, I've kind of kept that philosophy in the back of my mind because still I'm not, I don't chase news the way maybe a traditional reporter does because I know that's a losing game for me. I know that because I don't have a platform now, especially, but even back then when I was at Philly mag, I mean, look, you've got the Inquirer, you've got Comcast sports night, you've got the daily news, you've got the national guys who get a lot of it nowadays. I'm not going to win that game. So if it happens, great, but I'm more looking for background. I want them to inform my columns to inform my opinion so I can speak, you know, a little more, at least understand what it is they're doing, even if I don't agree with it. And I think that's put me in a spot where I think I have pretty strong relationships with people around the league. So and then, I mean, it's it's kind of like I said, I don't necessarily pursue news, but it sometimes it just happens. And a lot of times, I mean, it there's a lot of different places you can get news from. A lot of times it's not from the team or you're just getting confirmation from the team. It could be from people around the team, people around the players, people around the agents. It could, I mean, there's a billion different places it could come from. But I do think just the fact that I don't necessarily look for it, I think that's helped me form relationships. And I think that's helped me then break an occasional news story. But like I said, it's it's not something I pursue maybe as doggedly as other people because I do feel like it's with my outlet a little bit of a losing game and I could, I, I'm much better served having discussions to, to build background. Mm-hmm. So, and so you brought up Sam Hinkie, who of course was going to come up because let's face it, any uh, in-depth conversation about the Sixers, uh, Sam Hinkie's going to come up. Sure. Um, so you've seen, uh, you've gotten to know him and I've seen you write and, and heard you talk about him a little. And I, I listened to the podcast you did with uh, Chris Ballard, my colleague at SI who wrote sure. a great story about Hinkie in uh, SI's magazine uh, earlier this season or right before the season started, I think. Um, so you've, you've gotten to know him and then you've also seen, uh, you know, his reputation and the way he's talked about both locally and nationally. Um, so what was that, that like sort of that time going to him and, and, uh, I know you were able to talk to him on background and, and did, and, and I don't know how recently you have, if you're still in touch at all, but, uh, what was that like getting to know him and, and hearing his thoughts on, on basketball in general and the Sixers and, uh, getting to see the hinky that a lot of times the people in the public weren't able to. Yeah. I mean, it, he is, when you see him in person, he is kind of the exact opposite. I think of what people expect that he would be, because I think you go in from his reputation as, you know, an analytics guy to how infrequently he talked to the media on the record, how infrequently he did TV interviews or radio interviews. I think people kind of expect that he is, you know, very closed off, very, maybe even socially awkward. And that's just very, very much not the case. He is more than willing. You know, what was interesting with Sam is after a practice, after a press conference, before a game, you could find him, you know, just roaming around and talking to people. And if I walked up to him, he very rarely turned down a conversation. Now, he might not give me details I was looking for. He might, you know, skirt questions or or even just not answer questions. But he was always, we always, always, always willing to sit down and talk you know, ask you if there was anything that he could do for you, even if, again, even if your specific request wasn't feasible for him. He always took the time 
to talk. And if you asked him the right questions and framed it in the right way, you could kind of get his thoughts on, uh, on how he's approaching basketball, what he thinks about basketball, what he thinks about, you know, team building or the, how the game's played or where statistics are going. Like you could get a lot of background information. So I think he was really good about that. You know, he was really a lot more amenable to talking. And quite frankly, he was pretty, pretty open when he did talk, uh, that I think it was really surprising. He just, he wasn't going on the record. And I think you had to realize that. And I think for a lot of people covering the team, I think that was tough because I think, you know, when you're, you're around a team, you know, 250 days out of a year, you need quotes, you need stories, you need something to fill all of that space. And that's a very real part of the job that he was making their lives a lot more difficult. But like I said, I think because I came at it from a different angle and that I knew I wasn't going to break news to the degree that the other people were. And I was just looking for background information. I think it, I think it ended up working in my favor. He is a, he is a really interesting guy. And I think it's going to be really interesting what happens when he gets another shot to see what he has learned. Uh, but that, that whole team that he had with him, uh, I mean, they were, like I said, they were, they were incredibly easy to work with as long as you weren't, looking for you know specific breaking news or for spe- specific stories uh they were a, a a tight team and tight in terms of bond between them and also tight in terms of information getting out uh they were tighter in that regard than any te- any front office i've ever ever been around but they were uh i i think their reputation was a little bit undeserved because they were willing to to kind of talk on background mm-hmm. and uh how do you think the perception of him has changed in the, I guess it's almost a year now since he's been gone, uh, first with uh, your group, the the media who covers the team, and then also with the, the Philly public. How, how do you think uh, he's looked at differently compared to a year ago? Well, I think a couple things. First of all, Brian Colangelo started off the season not talking to the media all that frequently. When he did talk later in the season, it wasn't necessarily maybe the most truthful information in the world. And he doesn't necessarily give background like maybe maybe Sam would have. So I think a lot of people are realizing that, yeah, Sam didn't go on the record at all. He didn't leak information at all. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I I think maybe what you're seeing now is there's a lot of GMs, a lot of organizations kind of shifting to an approach that's very similar and the grass isn't always greener. So I think in terms of his willingness to work with the media, I think maybe that's even improved a little bit just because at least he didn't steer us in wrong directions like maybe some of the some of the recent injury news did. But in terms of reputation, it's it's going to come down to how the players perform. And you obviously had had Joel Embiid for, you know, 31 games, but Joel Embiid who looked very much the era defining player, who very much looked like a generational type talent. You have Dario Saric who's playing I think better than anybody would have could have expected and probably is going to be the rookie of the year. You have Ben Simmons who landed as a direct result of of the games that they lost last season and the lottery ball combinations as they accumulated. And then you have the Kings pick swap who I mean let's face it when they made that trade they were betting that eventually either DeMarcus Cousins would get sick of dealing with the Sacramento Kings or the Sacramento Kings would get sick of dealing with DeMarcus Cousins. And that 2019 unprotected pick they had, that pick swap that they have this year would become more valuable. And that has. So I think a lot of these long-term bets that Sam Hankey and his team made 
are starting to look a lot more like they're they're a lot more um you're seeing a lot more upside in those those moves and not even necessarily upside but maybe though that upside's a lot closer to to becoming realized so i think that's going to help him quite a bit in terms of his legacy i mean it, it it really has to it really is amazing how when they were here every move they made to defer just it didn't work out in the timeline they needed it to that number one pick which every year it's luck. You got to get lucky. You got that number one pick. They got the third pick two years in a row. They get the first pick a month after he leaves. You have that Lakers pick that w- didn't convey top five protected. I think the first year, top three last year, both years it fell in that range. And now it's, it's, it looks like it, it either. Well, it still may not convey, but it's unprotected next year. You have Joel Embiid. You knew he was going to be out one year. That second year wasn't planned. But then he comes back and looks good. It's just all every one of these decisions they needed to maybe show how close they were to making progress. They just didn't get lucky in the time frame they needed. But it's it's looking a lot better now. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm holding back. I could go on a very long rant <laughs> that there there were many of us who uh, who knew this all along and uh, and trusted the process. Uh, you might say. You and, might say. Uh, and knew that this day was coming. But Sam, if you're listening to this at three times speed, uh, I'm honored <laughs> and and uh, thanks. And feel free to subscribe. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be funny to see. Uh, I mean, I think uh, you know a lot of us know the perception among fans of what he did, even if he never gets full credit for it. Because I think there are some people who will never give him credit, even if Embiid and Simmons end up being you know a title contending uh, core. Um, you know, I think it's interesting to hear about the media and the people who deal with the team. And that's, that's been one of the most interesting, uh, sort of inside baseball subplots for me and a lot of us to watch is how angry people are with how the Colangelos have dealt with the media and that it hasn't really been any better than, uh, you know, what they, what people thought they were getting with Hinky. And so that's been, uh, it's been interesting to, to see and to hear people like you talk about, uh, what that's been like. So, yeah. But no, I'll... I mean, it was, like I said, at least when Sam told you something, it was, you know, it was, it was, it felt like it was good information and not necessarily just GM speak, although obviously he, he mixed in some of that as well. And that's something that you would then go in a week later, find out conflicting information. And I think, you know, I, th- I think he was good about that. He very rarely spoke, but when he spoke, I, th- I think it had, it had meaning. So. All right. Well, we can, uh. Transition a little to college because it is March and it's March Madness. Sure. Um, so, uh, I mean, and I know it sounds like you were already kind of a, a, a draft guy and uh, that was one of your first uh, writing opportunities. But, uh, I mean, it must be much easier uh, or you must be much more much more interested in covering the draft just because you're also covering the Sixers. And I feel like those are, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's one and the same. If you're covering the Sixers, it's almost, you know, as important to be – knowledgeable on the draft and everything than it is anything else because uh you know that it's been such a big story of them the last the last few years is you know who are they going to get in the draft and where are they going to be in the lottery and all that stuff so uh you know you you talked a little bit earlier about how you get the the game film but this time of year i think a lot of us and, and i'm one of them who you know i tune into the tournament and i'm watching these prospects um you know whereas there are actual experts who've been uh, following along all year uh, instead of people who pretend to be an expert um, so, you know, this time of year, what exactly are you focusing on? Are you looking at just kind of, uh, that top part and that lottery? Are you looking at like reaches and, and deep, uh, potential second round picks or guys in Europe? You know, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people are changing their evaluation based on watching one tournament game. Um, you know, so, so as you're going through this process of figuring out your draft evaluations, 
how are you spending your time and, and what are you watching and how are you forming those opinions? I am right now watching as a fan who wants to be entertained by the NCAA tournament. And I learned this a long time ago because first two, two things. I think when you try to, when you watch a tournament, your natural inclination is to maybe overvalue, like you said, making sweeping judgments based off of one or two games. And that is almost never, never a good approach to take. And I think it's really easy to get caught up in that while you know, during the NCAA tournament season. You mean so, like uh, Vlade Divac and Buddy Hield, maybe? <laughs> right, right. Um, so I think I, I, for the most part, I watch it as a fan. When I when I watch college games, especially when I'm um, in kind of like a scouting mode, I have you know kind of like notebooks and not not writing anymore, but you know typing on a computer. I'm constantly typing notes. I don't do that now. I at this time of year, I'll watch a game. Obviously, you're taking mental notes. You can't avoid that. But I'm really trying to get myself out of some of the ticks that I have when I'm watching to scout so I can enjoy what's going on. And then after the tournament's over, I'll go back and I'll focus on specific matchups that I think are, are high value matchups in terms of, you know, look, some of these guys, you don't see them go up against NBA prospects too many times. This might be the best, best competition they've played all year. And I'll watch that, you know, like I said, through kind of more of, of, of a scouting vein. But right now I try to I try to turn off the scout aspect of of my brain. I try to really watch it as a fan in part because I don't want to I want to enjoy this time too. In part because I'll I'll then be able to go back and over the next 2 months before the draft I'll I'll have time to go back and rewatch these games really you know zeroing in on what I need to, but also because you can then overrate what happens in a moment and let that kind of cloud both because of recency and because of stage what your evaluations were leading in. And if you kind of remove yourself from that environment, remove yourself from kind of the narratives that were forming around that, you can avoid that a little bit too. So right now I'm not, I'm not scouting the NCAA tournament nearly as much as I am watching it as a fan. All right. Well, and, uh, and good for you. I mean, I must make it a lot more fun and just easier to relax. I mean, depending on how your bracket is doing, which is how most of us watch it. and, And that can be frustrating. First year in, a decade. I haven't filled out a bracket. Wow, how's that gone? Are you? Uh, it sounds like you're you're pretty happy with the tournament. So you're happy with that decision too? Yeah. No, I am. Um, it's. I don't want to be rooting to make my tournament right. Like I want to be caught up in them, and that's part of the reason I don't want to scout. I want to be caught up in the moment. It's such a fantastic theater. What we have here with the NCAA tournament. It's on the one hand, I think it's it's really interesting to kind of like just juxtapose that with baseball where one of my problems with the baseball playoffs is you have this incredible 162-game sample size to figure out who the best team is. And the more playoff teams we add, the less we devalue that sample size and make it about random luck. And baseball is such a game of luck that a seven-game series might not be really sufficient to figure out who the best team is, and that bothers me. But on the other hand, the NCAA tournament definitely isn't the best way to figure out who the best team is. A one-and-done almost never is. But it's such great theater, and maybe it's because I have no real rooting interest. I'm a Drexel graduate, and we're so very rarely in the tournament that maybe it bothers me in baseball because I have a rooting interest, and especially in Philadelphia. You know, I kind of, as a, a Philadelphia resident, you got the benefit of that in 08, where you may not have been the best team in the league, but in 09, no 10, it cost you. So maybe that colors it as well. But I, I, I don't, I don't care that it doesn't find the best team per se because it's such an incredible event, and I just enjoy the event. And not having a bracket kind of helps me do that as well. 
All right, well, I've got one last question for you, and then I'll let you get out of here. But it's a, it's a complicated three-part question, so okay. maybe, maybe it won't be super quick. Um, so a ton can happen for the Sixers with the lottery coming up. And like you said earlier, they could get the Lakers pick if it falls outside the top three. They've got their own pick, which could uh, go in you know a range of, of spots. They could pick swap with Sacramento if they uh, uh, pass them in the lottery. So three scenarios, and you tell me what the Sixers should do. If they uh, get just one pick and it's the number one pick in the draft, if they get just one pick and it's the number five pick in the draft, or if they come away with two picks and they get number three and number five, if you're the Sixers, what would you do in those three situations? Wow. Okay. Um, so if it's a number one pick, I'm going Markel Fultz. You know, I think the way that he can, you know, he when you're talking about Ben Simmons, I think you need a couple things. First of all, I think you need a real knockdown catch-and-shoot shooter. I think he can do that. And I also think you'd really use a secondary playmaker because I think you're going to put Simmons and Embiid in pick and rolls. Let them operate. And then you need a guy who, if it's kicked out, he can, like I said, he can make that shot or he can drive past, you know, really attack a, a, an out-of-control closeout and make good decisions with the ball. And Fultz is so good as a shooter off the dribble. He's so good as a shooter off the pick and roll. You put Ben Simmons and he in, in, in a lineup, and I think that's going to be really tough to stop. So if you get the number one pick, I think he's a, he's a really easy decision. And I think that's that's becoming the consensus. I think I think most people think that most teams should take Fultz number one. It sounds like at this point. Yeah, I think maybe not a consensus, but I think that's a certainly a plurality. Okay. Um, what was the other? So the let's other... say they get they only come away with one pick and it's number five. Okay. Uh, that you know I think this is where it gets interesting because you have a guy like Malik Monk who's such a perfect fit in terms of what he can do shooting the basketball. And how that can help Ben Simmons and how that can help Joel Embiid. And by and large, he, he he's an archetype I don't necessarily love. At least I don't love as much as other people. Because he does so little outside of shoot. He's a poor defender. He doesn't really set up his teammates well. He doesn't force turnovers and get out on the break. He doesn't really rebound the ball. He doesn't create for others. I think I may have mentioned that, but it's such an important part. It's worth mentioning twice. But his shooting is such an elite skill. And I think there's a real difference between a good shooter and an elite shooter. And I think he can be an elite shooter. And I think that's a, a skill set which is even more important. You know, I think a team drafting him in the top five might be a little disappointed because I think when you draft a guard that high, I think you're looking for a guy who you can really run, you know, base your perimeter offense around. And I'm not sure he's going to be that. But I think on a team like the Sixers where you have such an unorthodox power forward or point forward or however you want to describe Ben Simmons, he's going to play a lot of the point on offense and defend the three or the four on defense. Because that's so unique, I think he could really be a good fit. So I think you have to consider him. And then the other guy I would kind of throw out there is Jonathan Isaac from Florida State. And I think he's a real a kid who can really grow. You know, 6'11", good wingspan, can shoot the ball, can play defense, can rebound, can defend multiple positions. It's not a need per se, but I think anytime you can get a guy who can A, shoot, B, make good decisions with the basketball, and C, defend multiple spots. I think that could be real interesting with Embiid and with Simmons in the front court. So he's another guy I would I would probably look at. I would probably lean. I like Isaac as a prospect better, and Monk certainly fits more. But I might just go Isaac and, and see how it would work out. It's tough, though, because you do have Dario Sharch, You do have Robert Covington. You have options in that spot. 
So it would be to me, the decision would come down between those two. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, it depends what other teams do ahead of them. If somebody falls in love with a player and uh, and, and, you know, trades up in front of the Sixers, uh, that the decision could be made for them, which uh, seems to exactly. Happen. So but, then. All right. Then the last area, they get two picks. They get the third pick and the fifth pick. Do you uh, do you pick two guys? Do you trade them and try and move up or uh, or trade one of them? What's uh, what's your plan there? I mean, if I, well, I mean, do you trade them? That, that obviously there's a piece of information you need to know before you can really say that. It's hard to say just a blanket trade one of the picks because sometimes there's real value in a trade like that, and sometimes you're selling low. So I think what I would say is, you know, three and five, I'm going to assume Fultz and Ball go one and two. So I'm going to strike those two out of the conversation. To me, it would come down to, jo- to kind of one forward and then one guard, and it would come down to Josh Jackson, um, Jonathan Isaac, and then I guess you could you could you could throw Jason Tatum in there as well, and Malik Malik Monk. I think those would be the four guys I would look at. I think I would probably try to swing it where I would be getting Josh Jackson and Malik Malik Monk, and I would move from there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, <laughs> we're far from that, and anything could happen. Um, but it's going to be fun. I'm excited for the lottery. I know most Sixers fans are uh, at this point just counting down to to that day. Um, but either way, next year is going to be a lot of fun too. So uh, it is. So uh, thanks, and I look forward to reading what you write about them uh, leading up to the lottery and after the draft and next season. Uh, it's going to be awesome. So thanks a ton, Derek, for uh, taking some time to hop on. Uh, anyone out there can follow you on Twitter at Derek Bodner NBA. That's uh, D E R E K B O D N E R NBA. And we can find your work at DerekBodner.com. Uh, I'm told uh, Godner.com also uh, <laughs> redirects that your uh, your nickname in, in some corners around here. Um, yep. And people can subscribe to your work uh, and uh, on Patreon for $3 a month. Uh, we can check out at The Ringer now, the first piece, and uh, expecting more to come. Anything else? Uh, anywhere people should uh, should look or anything else you want to plug? No, I think I think that's pretty much covers it. I will say that is very much not a nickname that I gave or endorsed myself <laughs> right, yeah. whatsoever. Yes, <laughs> to, make, yes. uh, to make that clear, that is not uh, not a self given nickname, but uh, but it's uh, it's an easier way to to uh, tell people about the website. So there is that. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I uh, appreciate it, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. It's my pleasure. All right. Well, when you follow Derek on Twitter, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mitch Goldich, M-I-T-C-H-G-O-L-D-I-C-H. You can also subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. Like I said at the top, if you're a Philly person, you'll probably like a few of the past episodes. Tom McCarthy was just on a couple months ago and told some great stories about being in the Phillies booth. Jason Stark has been on and talked all about his relationship with the Philly fans. Uh, Same with Shil Kapadia, who uh, covered the Eagles. Uh, Michael Levin from the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. He and I did one last year to talk about the crazy uh, lottery party that uh, he put on uh, with Spike Eskin and, uh, you know, talked all about Hinky and, and that was a fun one. Um, there are other episodes that have less to do with Philly and you uh, can listen to those too. If you enjoy it, please do me a favor and leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It takes a second, helps other people find the podcast, which is always nice. And I always appreciate it. So please go do it. Uh, you can also... Uh, Like my Facebook page to make sure you catch all of my episodes and articles that I write for Sports Illustrated. And you can visit my website, MitchGoldich.com. Thanks again, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon.